American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. In the 1920s and 1930s, American film and American popular music are already making substantial inroads in the global market for popular culture. But many nations, particularly the industrialized nations of Western Europe, have their own local industries developing in exactly those fields. They're resisting, in some cases fairly effectively, the encroachment uh, of English language, uh, American-produced popular film and popular music. Well, World War II uh, obviously levels a massive blow against those local industries, and in many cases brings effectively an end to them, at least for many decades. And into that vacuum comes the U.S. and its popular culture. That shouldn't be a surprise, given that it's backed by the, the sort of kinetic force of the uh, extremely powerful U.S. economy, especially powerful in the context of uh, post-World War II devastation. And it also shouldn't uh, be a surprise that U.S. government and U.S. big business is backing that expansion. In particular, U.S. government is concerned to do this because it is now, after 1945, engaged in a sort of global competition for hearts and minds with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union claims to be the workers' paradise and depicts the U.S. Uh, as a realm of uh, racial segregation uh, and um, attacks on labor unions and all that sort of thing. So the U.S. State Department sponsors numerous tours in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s that take, in particular, African-American musicians like New Orleans uh, jazz musician uh, and innovator uh, Louis Armstrong and puts them in front of global audiences, sends them around the world not just to increase the positive nature uh, of um, uh, a world audience's feeling towards the United States, but to undermine the news that seeming to, seemingly is coming out of Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and so on every day about attacks on civil rights marchers uh, and the resistance of white Southerners to the end of segregation. It's a, it's a kind of a, a counterforce to that news. Meanwhile, U.S. corporations are doing their best to get their products into European and other markets. In the wake of World War II, to protect their industries, many European countries uh, are reluctant to allow this. They're raising tariff barriers again. Uh, there's, of course, under the Bretton Woods system, an attempt to keep those tariff barriers low as possible, but it's not always successful. They're also resisting, and I think here we could say in particular the arbiters of high culture in places like France, Germany, and Britain, what they see as the encroachment of American ideas and American styles. In the early 1960s, French magazines are still arguing that the greatest danger to France is not a revived fascism or the Soviet Union or anything like that, it's actually American popular culture. But despite that resistance, American popular culture by the 1960s has so successfully invaded in particular European youth culture that over the next few decades, uh, European arbiters of high culture will simply surrender. Uh, they will stop complaining about uh, their students wearing Levi's uh, and t-shirts and drinking Coca-Cola. They'll still, in the case of France, try to keep American words out of, or English words that come from America out of the French language, but ultimately that will be fairly unsuccessful. Now, some of this is driven by U.S. products that are directly exported to Europe, but 
a lot more of that is delivered by uh, other means, in particular uh, in, in two ways. The first is by uh, American multinational corporations actually locating subsidiaries uh, in Europe, uh, sending managers and executives, hiring local people on the ground, building production facilities for things like Coca-Cola uh, or Levi's jeans uh, or General Motors vehicles, things like that. And the, the ways that, that this changes European business culture, European work culture are sometimes extreme and, and uh, direct, uh, like American consultants uh, insisting that without building parking lots, uh, their subsidiaries, stores uh, in France and Belgium will be unsuccessful, which changes the landscape uh, of the areas around those stores in some obvious ways. And two much more subtle uh, transformations uh, in workplaces and so on. But the single biggest way in which ideas are exported, of course, is visually and orally through the words, through the music, through the images that come from American music, American uh, film, and increasingly American television, which become, uh, if not quite dominant yet, uh, become far and away uh, the most powerful popular cu cultural force in the world uh, by the 1960s. In fact, by the mid-1960s, uh, American uh, popular culture exports are already pushing automobiles uh, and some of the other major categories of exports uh, as the leaders uh, in American exports. Well, one way to understand it is to think of these products and these ideas uh, as a kind of soft power, uh, as something that counteracts, uh, maybe ameliorates the negative effects and the negative publicity generated by American mili military power and more heavy-handed attempts uh, to shape the world uh, around the policy prescriptions of Washington. And whether that's good or bad, of course, uh, people uh, will think different things about. But another way to think about all of those popular culture commodities and products is to think about them as advertisements for the American way of capitalism. Every can of Coca-Cola, every pair of Levi's jeans, every Hollywood movie, uh, every three-minute hit from Motown or whatever the latest hit factory, they all carry not just whatever they carry in themselves as ideas and as uh, uh, advertisements for a particular celebrity or a particular product or some or a particular style, but they also carry in themselves that sort of ineffable aura of American capitalism, of American cool, that becomes uh, something that, that many consumers around the world want to borrow. And not just consumers, um, not just them, but producers as well. And producers in various countries, uh, merchants, um, factory owners, etc., start to come up with ways to borrow some of that themselves and to use it themselves to take American ways of doing business, American ways of advertising, American ways of conceiving and marketing products and apply them to their own ends. And eventually some of those products actually start to come back into the United States. Whether they are then products of American capitalism at first hand, second hand, or third hand, first generation, uh, or second generation descended from American ways of, of making and selling things, that's, that's a, a different kind of question. But they are inevitably shaped by American capitalism. In just the same way that the Beatles are inevitably shaped by American popular music. They come back to the United States, they transform the American popular music scene, but 
they simply would not exist without African-American music coming from the American South and making its way through all of these very strange and complex paths to Liverpool and England. Likewise, the products which now flow back into the United States from countries all around the world are themselves in certain ways produced by American capitalism. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Thank you.